No Junk Mail presents Harry Nation, Part 1, read to you by James Von Felt. Things are quiet in our town this week, but over in Bloomfield, they're getting ready to celebrate Harry Nation Days. Saturday, June 26th is the day. A day full of festivities, 5K race, Kins Fun Run, food vendors and beer garden, and the big attraction, Fahrenheit providing music. Some events start Friday night. Don't miss it. Better than that, though, Dexie and I decided to go check out what's going on in Harry Nation. So, last week we were off to Rutledge. Rutledge is entertaining, practical, a great outing, and a fun day trip from our town. It's entertaining because you get to see so many people, things, animals, situations you normally don't see. It's practical because you find antiques you've been looking for as well as practical items. I picked up a hand-driven grain grinder for my chicken feed that i was been looking for for a long time and a replacement roller for the barn door. The cost was a fraction of buying a new one. You'll see people riding horses and mules. They're for sale. A lot of people are carrying around pistols, rifles, and other such armament. That, too, is for sale. I saw a giant yellow snake. Must have been about six foot long. The handler had the snake wrapped around him and was talking to the snake. It was for sale. Sold him, too. Places to eat? Yeah, hamburgers, hot dogs, pop, breaded onions, and other delicacies for a nominal fee. Exercise is free. You can walk miles up and down the dusty road, checking out stands as you go. For those who don't have any idea where Harry Nation is, just shows how quiet people around here have been about it. It's just south of our town a few miles. The capital city is Rutledge. Don't confuse the capital city, Rutledge, with the small Missouri town of the same name. That city has a population of 109, mostly Mennonite. To get to Harry Nation's capital, you take Highway 2 to 15 South, then Route M south of Memphis, one and a half miles to Route V East. Just stay on that road. Only open for tourists two days a month. Vendors set up on Thursdays. People come Friday and Saturday, browse through about 60 acres of stuff you couldn't have imagined to see anywhere else on earth, puts Walmart to shame. Now, how in the world did this get started? I'm glad you asked. You see, way back before cars, roads, or even McDonald's, immigrants were coming to New York City on boats. Yes, I mean boats. Boats with sails. And they sailed here all the way from Europe, where most got pardoned out of jail if they would just leave and go to America, which they told them was drowning in Happy Meals and Fries. Well, the smart ones said sure, but ducked out and went to France. Got big jobs in the stock market where they pawned they sold the rube stock in Louisiana. A big bubble, and they got rich. I mean really rich. But the rest of them went on to New York City got off the boat, took their one-way ticket to Chicago, 
which at that time was wooden shacks all built close together and a lot of cow pens which held the critters coming off the trains from the west. Well, the stockyard slaughtering barns gave the place an awful smell, which is why they called it Chicago which means stinking dead cows in lower Mongolian dialect. Anyway, the one-way tickets ended in Chicago to bring unsuspecting foreigners to the city for cheap, I mean really cheap labor. And it worked. They ended up there, and after working the stockyards' jobs for a few months, they agreed that they would rather be dead than work in those jobs. So... They started looking around for a cheap way out of town. Now hold on to that part of the story. It's important. Remember, this was early on, real early on, like 1830s. The story goes on that at this very same time as these guys were working away in Chicago, the territory due west of Chicago becomes a state, the state of Missouri. So, the U.S. government decides to mark the northern boundary of Missouri. How else would they know who to tax? The Indians figured it out right away and moved on to better places. The U.S. Army survey crew from Fort Dearborn, right there in Chicago, was ordered to set the boundary. Captain John Whistler would head up the mission. He had a lot of wilderness experience. He was the one who led the effort to build Fort Dearborn in Chicago. He also directed the construction of Fort Monroe's on the Mississippi River. He could get the job done. Well, the weekend before they were to start out, the survey crew was celebrating at the White Dove, a local inn, which in those days was a pub, inn, and body house. One thing led to another, and some say there was a knockdown drag em out fight, which ended in a duel over a one-eyed barmaid. To make a short story shorter, the guy who knew how to run the high-tech surveying equipment was buried. This caused a big problem for Captain John, but not to worry. He had a manual for operating the Zenith telescope. That's the essential piece of technology used in those days to set boundaries. There was, however, one little itty-bitty problem, however. The soldiers on this mission were volunteers. They couldn't read, except for Private Harry Good. He could read, at least a little bit, and so he was awarded double ration of grog, promoted to first class, and given the manual. The week after the hospitality money ran out, the crew was sent packing and proceeded to fulfill their mission. So off they go, the crew of 15, horses, wagons, and equipment fully loaded for a long trip. The first leg of the trip was west, 200 miles from Chicago to the Mississippi River. They were making about 10 miles a day, so Private Good had plenty of time to bone up on the telescope. Once at the Mississippi River, they rafted downriver for another 100 miles or so to Fort Monroe. Fort Monroe provided a week of R&R to prepare the men for the trek west across the state. The mission took them all the way west to the Missouri River. They knew the starting point, the mouth of the Des Moines River, as it enters the Mississippi. 
Today, you'll find the city of Keokuk, Iowa, at that very spot. In those days, it was a shallow crossing, a natural trail that went west. French explorers, Indians, adventurers of every ilk, and mountain men used it. Just so you get this straight at the beginning. The Army's job was to establish the northern boundary of Missouri. Twenty-five years later, that line would become the southern boundary of Iowa. For the Army crew, it was hard work cutting through the virgin forests, fighting off hungry bells and other critters. The survey party started slow as Private Good began to get his bearings with the zenith. Starting where the Mississippi River meets the Des Moines River, they went north a few miles up the west side of the Des Moines River. Finally, Private Good gave the word that it was time to go straight west. They buried the starting marker right where he put his foot. A big boulder was set right beside the marker. Some say Private Good read the instrument wrong. Others say he may have mistaken a fly speck on the zenith for a bearing. The result was he was 25 miles south of where the boundary was supposed to be. From that point, they went due west. After going 75 miles west, Private Good realized the error and, without telling anyone, figured out a northern correction which took them to parallel 36 degrees, 30 minutes. That was where the northern boundary was supposed to be all the time. From there, they went on west to the Missouri River, marking the border as they went. What Private Harry Good did was create a piece of free land between Missouri and what would soon be Iowa. It was 25 miles wide by approximately 75 miles long. Hot damn, do you get it? There was an unclaimed, uncharted piece of no man's land between Missouri and what soon would be Iowa, a sizable stretch. According to today's maps, that would be from Lancaster, Missouri to Cahoka, then east to the Des Moines River. So what, you say? Well, I'll tell you so what. It just so happened that after the survey team got back to Chicago, they stopped for liquid refreshment at a local watering hole, where they also were engaged in a friendly hand or two of old maid, whereupon the survey crew lost all their money, boots, and surveying equipment, but still owed more to, you guessed it, a few of those European slaughterhouse ne'er-do-wells who were ready to chop them up with knives if they didn't come up with more treasure. This was an emergency and needed a hot idea quick. That's when Private Good came up with the treasure map. It's worth millions, he claimed, and after some coaching from the rest of the troop, drew up a map of the slice of land between North Missouri and South Iowa. This was the unclaimed free land which he called Harry Nation, because he didn't know what else to call it. Well, after a bit of intense discussion, verbal demands, and some moderate shoving, the map was accepted as payment. 
tensions were relieved. The bootless troops went on without their survey equipment back to the fort, which today you can view on Google Maps at the corner of Michigan Avenue and Wacker Lane in Chicago, where they were reprimanded and put in the brig until new equipment arrived. Meanwhile, back in the barrio of Chicago, the Zenith telescope, other equipment and boots were pawned, and provisions were obtained to set out for Harry Nation, the no-man's land between Iowa and Missouri. Sure enough, they found the first marker right where it was supposed to be. Then they explored the area, shooting deer and anything else that moved. A temporary trading center for the inhabitants of this area eventually took hold. They named the trading post Rutledge. That's what it's called today. It's Harry Nation's capital city, and that's its history, as far as the Gas and Grill Historical Society can make out. Now, as Missouri developed, they just seemed to stop short of Harry Nation because it was kind of wild. No roads, just dirt trails for horses and wagons, and nobody willing to pay taxes. That's still the way most of it is today. Of course, it has its capital city, Rutledge, the place where people come and barter and sell. That is the city, the only city, if you want to call it that, more like a gathering once a month on 200-acre tract of land. Few people live there all year long. But the city does come alive on the second weekend of each month from March till September. Now, people get there every which way they can by walking, horseback, mule, horse and buggy, car, truck, tractor, four-wheeler, you name it and ride it if you can get through the roads. Don't go if it's been raining, unless you're on horseback, because you'll get stuck and have to walk home. Pictures I sent you were taken in Rutledge, where you can buy just about anything you want. Don't worry, it's safe, because most everyone is sporting sidearms or long rifles, just like what you see in Stephenville, Texas. There's one particular thing, though. You can't buy or sell a dog. That's right. It's a hairy nation law, and there's lots of good hunting dogs available, too. What you have to do is this. Offer trade or cash for the dog's collar. Then he's yours. Oh, another thing. Most all the men are wearing beards and mustaches. So if you're wanting to see the real America or what's left of it, come on down. We'll go to Rutledge and see the original hairy nation. One more thing. There's a whole lot more to this story than what I've told you so far. I'll have it ready for you next time you stop in. Well, that's it for now, from where the corn grows tall and pigs fly. Take care. All my love, Grandpa Jim.